Hello and welcome to As We Wait, an in-depth, verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible with pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. This is the conclusion of a three-part study of the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapters 23 and 24, as we finish off our study of the book of Joshua. You have a few moments, so why don't you go get your Bibles and follow along. Please turn to Joshua chapter 24. So if you're going to love the Lord truly, in truth, then the first step, and it's kind of confrontational, but he says first step is put away the gods which your father served. He knows that there's stuff going on behind the scenes. Just because he's not right there in their tent confronting them every night, somehow he knows, in a sense, what's going on. And it's still going on. When the Apostle John wrote his first epistle, you know the order of things. The Apostle John first wrote the book of Revelation, then he wrote the Gospel of John, and then he wrote his final three epistles. And so John is nearing the end of his life when he writes First John. And the last words in the book of First John, the letter of First John, if you will, is in First John chapter 5, verse 21. And he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why would John make that his closing statement in that book, in that letter to each of us? Because he knows that we're prone to idolatry. He knows that we're prone to worshiping. And what's an idol? Let's define that for a minute. Because some people think that an idol is like a little plastic Buddha that you put on your table and put oranges in front of it and burn incense to it. Yeah, that's an idol. Okay. And you can go to a lot of places and, and see all kinds of different idols, Okay, religious idols. But an idol, I'm going to broaden the definition. An idol is anything that we worship or revere more than God himself. In other words, I love my wife, as an example. I love my wife dearly, and God has called me to love my wife. But you know what? I used to say when I was younger, man, I love my wife. I idolize her. And I've learned not to say that because I don't. I've learned to love the Lord my God more than my wife. And it's okay because she loves God more than me too. We've come to that agreement. But there are people that love their job, their career, their car, their video game or whatever, more than God. And you say, well, no, but they'll never admit to it. Oh, I don't love my car more than that. Really? How much time do you spend polishing your car and making sure it's parked just the right way and maintaining it, doing all these things, but it won't give God the time of day? How many people will go to sporting events or different things when they know that they should be in fellowship worshiping the Lord? Idols can be relationship. It can be our kids. It can be our stuff. It can be a lot of things. It doesn't have to say idol across the forehead to be an idol. 
Okay, And so we've got to be careful that we don't fall into idolatry, that we don't give our time, our effort, and our love to some inanimate thing as opposed to giving it to the true and living God who deserves it the very most. But then we get to verse 15. Here Joshua just kind of calls him on the carpet a little bit and makes, brings him to a place of choice. And if it seemed evil to you to serve the Lord, then choose you this day who you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Think about this for a second. He only offers two choices, and they're both bad. Because if you're not going to serve God, then the only other choice you've got is bad. If you're not going to serve God, then it's going to be a pagan God. It's going to be a foreign God. It's going to be some of the weird thing. But it's the understanding that if we don't worship God, we will worship something else. And he brings him to a place. He says, choose. You know, suck it up, act like a man, and choose. And I like that because no more waffling back and forth. No more stammering between the two. It's always sad when you see somebody that's trying so hard to put on a spiritual appearance and they'll, they'll come to church but they can hardly wait to get out so they can go do the thing they really want to do. Back and forth. Not, just, you know, just choose. James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 8, he says that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, and that is true. Someone that's got a, a foot here and a foot there, and they waffle back and forth all the time. They're like the things driven about by the wind or whatever. And there is, again, that understanding in this statement that we are going to serve something. And if we don't serve the true and living God, then we're going to serve something else. You know, from a practical standpoint, I don't think there's any such thing as a real atheist. A lot of people say, well, I'm an atheist. And what they're saying is, I don't believe in the God of the Bible, or I don't believe in organized religion, or whatever. But there's no such thing, I don't think, as an atheist, because everybody worships something. I remember hearing a certain college professor one time claim to be an atheist, and I just about laughed out loud because he worships intellect. He worshiped knowledge. He worshiped himself. You know, and He was not an atheist. He had a god. He made his god in his own image, and he bowed down to it every day, and he yielded to it every day. Still others may reject the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, claiming to be atheists, but their god might be money or power or career or family or sports or party time or whatever that Everybody worships something. That which we worship is what we give our time and our effort to, our resources, that which we cling to and revere. The master passion of our life, that is our God. And it can be God with a capital G, like the God, the true and the living God, Jesus, or it can be the God with a little g. And then you can fill in all the blanks there and throw oranges in front of it if you want to. You know, Because that's what people do. They think that they're going to do those kinds of things and God's somehow going to look the other way. Joshua makes this declaration, but it's for me and my house will serve the Lord. Joshua can't speak for the nation. Joshua can't speak for anyone else but his own household. And Joshua's about to pass from the scene. But he says, you know what? As long as I'm here, it's for me and my house. We're going to serve the Lord. And we don't know anything about Joshua, uh, his wife, his kids, or anything else we read here, which is nothing. But assuming that he's got a family... It's almost like he's making a declaration. I kind of know where they stand. As for me and my house, he's speaking for his household. And I would assume that his children were walking with the Lord. But I like it as well because there's a commitment there. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. It's not like, well, I'll think about it and get back to you. You He makes a real commitment. Then in verse 16, it says, And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up, and our fathers out of the land of Egypt 
from the house of bondage, which did those great signs in our sights and preserved us in all the way wherein we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites, which dwelt in the land. Wherefore, we will serve the Lord, I like this last part, for he is our God. They basically acknowledge what Joshua's been saving. They say, God forbid, we're not going to serve other gods. And they declare that he is our God. That's a good step. Then in verse 19, Joshua kind of fronts them off. And he says, and Joshua said unto the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God and he is a jealous God. They've just gotten and saying, but we're with you. We're going to do that. And he goes, but you can't do that. Can you imagine being told? You declare, I will follow God all the days of my life. And the pastor goes, you can't do that. And the reason he says that is because he knows something. He says that as he goes on, he will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods. Then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you after that he has done you good. Basically at this point, you can't serve the Lord if you're going to be involved in idolatry. You can't serve the Lord if you're double-minded. You can't serve the Lord if you've got these secret things going on. God is holy, God is jealous, and he won't share. In Romans chapter 8, verse 8, Paul says basically the same thing. He says, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. I'm always, I don't know, surprised at times when people will come to church as an example, and simply by coming to church and sitting and hearing a Bible study, they give themselves kind of a false sense of security or assurance. Like, hey, I'm doing the right thing. I'm coming to church. In the meanwhile, they're committing adultery or they're doing some other kind of sin lifestyle. So now we all transgress. We all stumble and fall. That's one thing. But to live a life of intentional sin is something different. And this is what Joshua is describing. He says, you can't worship God. You can't serve him because he's a holy God. You can fool people. We can fool people, but we can't fool God. And that's what Joshua is saying. He says, no, 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 it's got to be the whole program. Because we have to understand that God will judge sin. And Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10.31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, God is righteous and holy and true, just like Joshua was declaring. And he knows the truth. And that's why we're called to worship him in, in truth and to love him in truth, but to act hypocritically and to whether it's to attend church or to just put on spiritual airs, knowing that we're living a life that's contrary to God's word is foolhardy. And Joshua's basically saying, drop the pretense. Let's do this for real. Okay? He's fronting them off. And he's exhorting them to holiness. King Asa, back in the, looking forward from where we are anyway, King Asa was considered a pretty good king. Um, when he was made king of Judah, it records that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And so he starts off really well. And not long after he becomes king, the Ethiopians come in and they basically invade Judah. And they bring an army of about a million Ethiopians. And Israel can muster an army, maybe like 300,000 or something like that. So they realize they're pretty much toast. And so King Asa begins to cry out to God, God, don't let man have a victory over you like this. And God responds. He, he steps in and he wipes out the Ethiopians. And it's a great victory. And as King Asa is coming back from that victory, a prophet by the name of Azariah comes to him. And we read about this in Second Chronicles 15.2. And Azariah says, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And it's the understanding that as long as we're doing what God wants us to do, 
that God will bless and God will prosper. I don't want to get into the you know, foolish name it, claim it kind of stuff and all that kind of junk. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the inherent blessing that comes from being obedient to God's word. And that's exactly what God calls us to. But then they get to verse 21. And the people said unto Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. And what they're saying is, no, 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 no. First it says nay, and it's like a contrast. No, but we will serve the Lord. What they're saying is, no, we're not going to do that. You know, we're not going to go down that road. We will repent. We will put our idols aside, and we will serve the Lord. But then in verse 22, And Joshua said unto the people, But you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen you, the Lord, to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. So what's going on here is you will bring judgment down upon yourselves if you swear to serve him and don't. He's warning, be careful. And after, you know, it's funny. I've been in that place before of trying to you know, witness to people and stuff and, and share the gospel and try and help people get saved. And there's been a couple times, not a lot, but a couple times when I'm talking to somebody and they're too quick almost to want to you know, receive Jesus. It's like, you know, and I'm thinking about it. And I go, do you realize what you're getting into? And it sounds weird to talk people out of getting saved. But for people to get saved, in a sense, flippantly, or to not realize what they're doing is foolishness. And I said, you realize that by accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that means you need to repent of your sin. That means you need to turn away from your lifestyle. That means you've got to leave your girlfriend. Okay, or tell her to move out or something. And they go, oh, really? Huh. Yeah, <laughs> because we're not going to do the whole play Christian thing. Okay, And that's essentially what Joshua is telling these guys right now. Make sure that it's real. <laughs> make sure that you really are committed. And that's what he says in verse 23. Now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and incline or lean your heart unto the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. He's telling them, get rid of the pagan idols, stop worshiping other gods, and turn your hearts wholly back to the Lord God of Israel. Joshua knew that they were compromised. And whether it's, again, a revelation from God, or if you saw somebody doing something, I don't know what, but he knew that they were doing that, so he's challenging them on that. And then in verse 24, it's kind of interesting. It's like an interactive sermon here. That Joshua says something, people say something back, and that must have been pretty cool. In verse 24, And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. Now what they're saying is we will obey the word of God. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. So the people basically renew their commitment to obey the Lord, and Joshua affirms that. And Joshua, verse 26, uh, wrote these words in the book of the law of God, which we're reading this morning, and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said unto all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us, for it hath heard all the words of the Lord which he spake unto us. It shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, every man to his own inheritance. So the people renew their commitment to the Lord. Joshua records all that. He sets up a large stone, like a, a monument or a reminder, and reminds them of their oath, and then he basically dismisses the people. To me, this is kind of cool, because we need those reminders in our life at times. Not that long ago, uh, fairly recently, I was digging through some stuff, and I stumbled across, Grace and I have this uh, picture album from our wedding day. You always pay like about a million bucks to have a photographer take a million pictures, and then eventually you put them away somewhere. I'm just cleaning out some stuff, opening up this box, and there's this thing. So I start flipping through it. And there's Grace and I, you know, getting ready for the wedding. And then we're up at the altar and, and pictures of us taking our vows together and stuff. And it just reminded me of that day when I stood there and, and basically took an oath before God and to my bride and before all kinds of witnesses to love my wife through sickness and health and all that stuff until death do we part. 
and reminded me of the, the commitment that I'd made. And you know what? There's times, not just with that, but with life in general, that we need reminders of the commitments that we've made to the Lord. I don't know if uh, video rental stores are still the thing, but uh, I remember back in the day walking into the video rental place and being reminded as I walked through, okay, no bad movies. Make sure you get something that's edifying. And after a while, I wouldn't even go in there. I realized nothing's edifying. But we need those reminders as we go through life. What are we about? Who are we committed to? Is this part of loving God? And so, again, Joshua makes this monument. Then in verse 29, And it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnasirah, which is the Mount of Ephraim on the north side of the hill of Gaash. Joshua, the quote-unquote servant of the Lord. Man, there's no higher title <laughs> that anybody can have. If we just go down being recorded as John or Sue or whoever, the servant of the Lord. That's awesome all by itself. That's our calling. You know, Jesus, as he was talking the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant. Aren't those the words that you want to hear, to have Jesus rest his hand on your shoulder and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Just to be a servant of the Lord is enough. Well, we can only be called that, by the way, if we serve him. <laughs> you know, we think, oh, I'm a servant of the Lord. All right, how do you serve the Lord? We need to serve him if that's going to be the case for us. Verse 31, And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua, which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. And so there's understanding that even as Joshua passes from the scene, these other elders that were children in the land of Egypt, you know, they were under 20, still some great hairs hanging around that had seen all these things. And as long as that generation was there, essentially, they served the Lord. The sad part is, is that it kind of implies that when that generation died off, that they didn't serve the Lord. And that's when we get into the book of Judges and see the ups and downs of things that take place. Then it says in verse 32, And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem, in a parcel of ground, which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor, the son of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver. And it became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. And so you remember Joseph, he was the, the favored son of Jacob. His brothers got jealous and sold him into slavery in Egypt. And through a series of events, he ends up being a powerful man in Egypt. In fact, he was the most powerful man, second only to Pharaoh himself. And so God used Joseph to preserve the nation of Israel. And as uh, things were still good, if you will, before they were in bondage, Joseph believed God's word. He knew the promises that had been made to Abraham and to Isaac and to his father Jacob. You're going to get the land. And when you get the land, when you leave this place and go back to the land of Canaan, take me with you. Take my bones. Don't leave me in Egypt. Bury me in the land of promise. And so in fulfillment of that prophecy, because he spoke that hundreds of years before it happened, they're back in the land. And so they brought Joseph's bones and they buried him in the land of his descendants. And then it says, finally now in verse 33, And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him in a hill that pertained to Phinehas, his son, which was given him in Mount Ephraim. So Aaron was the first high priest, and his son Eleazar took over when Aaron died. And now Eleazar passes from the scene, and Phinehas, his son, which we'll read about more in the book of Judges, he becomes the high priest. He's a hot dog kind of guy, man. He's, a, he's on fire for the Lord, and, and we'll see a lot more from him. So you've got all these guys basically pass away. Now, 
when Moses passed from the scene, Moses cried out to God and says, you know, the people need a shepherd. They need someone to guide them and to lead them and to show them how to come in and come out. And God says, well, look at Joshua. And basically Joshua had been groomed for quite a while. And so there's a transition that takes place there. Now it's Joshua passing away, but who does he pass the torch to? There doesn't seem to be like an heir apparent in all this. And thinking about that, Joshua is a type of Jesus. We've studied that all through this book. And as a type of Jesus, you think about that, who do we have besides Jesus? Is there any sacrifice beyond Jesus? Is there another mediator besides Jesus? Is there any other anything besides Jesus? And the answer is no, there isn't. And so in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so there is no one to follow Joshua. There is no one to follow Jesus. Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So there's an implication here. As Joshua passes from the scene and the people are left essentially without a leader per se, there's an expectation that the children of Israel would no longer need a mediator to hear God's voice. They don't longer need Moses or Joshua to, you know, hey Moses, what does God say? And Moses finds out and comes back and tells the people. Now they're going to go from a religious relationship, if you will, involving a mediator, to a personal relationship where they hear one-on-one by themselves. And isn't that exactly what we're to do? We go from a religious relationship with God, if you will, in some way, shape, or form, and we transition into a personal relationship where we hear directly from God. And we see this demonstrated in the very next book, in Judges chapter 1, verse 1. Take a look at that. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? Verse 2. And the Lord said, what do you have? You've got the children of Israel. It doesn't say this leader or that leader. The children of Israel asked God, and God responded. That's the personal relationship that we're to have. You guys are welcome to come to me anytime or any any other brother or sister. But, you know, first go to God. And God does speak through people and stuff. But, you know, God wants to tell us personally. And we can pray to God and ask him, and God will answer that prayer. That's a personal relationship, and that's what this book points to. This book is all about the promised land. This book is all about taking the land and the promises that God has given to the children. But that's our life. That's what we're to do. We're to walk in in the newness of life that we have now, to walk in the promises that God has given us. And part of that is being able to talk to God and having God talk back. It's called a conversation, and it's called communion and fellowship with him. And that's what God desires for each one of us. Amen? Amen. Gracious Father, once again, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Father, for blessing us today, for speaking to our hearts. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand these things better, to comprehend it fully, Lord, and simply to walk in your ways. And, and Lord, to do the things that Joshua admonished the people to do. Lord, to be obedient to your word and to cleave to you, Lord, and to love you. And Lord, help us by your spirit to love you more. We commit our ways to you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's all the time we have for now. 
You've just been listening to pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, teaching the conclusion of a three-part in-depth study of the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapters 23 and 24. We have now finished our study through the book of Joshua. Please join us again next time as we begin our study through the book of Judges. Romans 10.17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So make it a point to please join us again next time as we continue our study through the book of Joshua and the entire Bible. In fact, why don't you take the time to read ahead? As We Wait is an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. We pray that you were blessed, and we want to invite you to join us in person. Calvary Chapel meets at 450 Richmond Road, right across from the Railroad Depot and next to Mama's. On Sunday mornings, we meet at 8.30 and 10.30. Our Wednesday evening service is at 7 p.m. And communion is celebrated the first Sunday of each month at 6 p.m. If you can't make it in person, all services are streamed live on the web at www.ccsusanville.com. To get the entire study on CD, please call the church office at 530-257-4833. If you've made a profession of faith and would like more information on what it is to grow in your faith, we'd love to hear from you. Won't you take a few minutes to write to us? You can mail your cards and letters to P.O. Box 1316, Susanville, California, 96130. Until next time, may God richly bless you. Won't you come, won't you come and build this place, Lord.